the 119th edition of the Four Corners Podcast starts right now. Black holding high, goes to Darty. Darty in the double team, gives it back to Black with 20 seconds left to play. Goes back to Michael Jordan, jumper from out on the left, good! Rebounded by Weber. Michigan out of timeout. Weber front court, Carolina with foul. He takes the timeout, they're out of timeout. Technical foul, technical foul on Michigan. Ed Corbett says he can run the baseline, hands in the ball. Brown gets it into Williams. Here comes Williams front court. Williams on the drive. Gets it back out the head. Long outside shot. Short rebounded. May. It's over. Carolina has won the national championship. 89-72. And how about them Tar Heels? They are the national champions. Matthews off the mark. And this year, the confetti is going to fall for North Carolina. They're not going to be denied this time. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Four Corners Podcast. We are powered by Carolina Electrical Services. Josh and Anthony back with you guys for the first time since Carolina's season came to an end last Monday night when they fell to Kansas in the national championship game. We took a little break. Uh, We took some time to recharge the batteries, try to get over the loss. Um, I know I speak for myself. I am not completely over losing to Kansas in the final. But we we missed talking about the Tar Heels, so we're back today. We're going to give our final thoughts on the 2021-22 season. We're going to give our early predictions on the players that are either staying in college or, or, or seeking professional opportunities elsewhere. But before we do any of that, we start every pod as we always do. With the pod thought of the day, we go to author David Chadwick, who helped write some of the books that Dean Smith wrote um, back when he was coaching and when he got done coaching. Um, And this quote's about Dean Smith. He said, Dean Smith emphasized people are always first. He made people his his highest priority. He never used his players to become great. He committed to serve his players so they could become great. And that's what we're trying to do here for you guys. Um, on the pod, we're we're trying we're here to serve you, to talk to you, um, and and try to to deliver a product that the joke you guys could be proud of. And um, I can echo what I said in the last edition of the podcast. We just want to thank you for all the support we've gotten this basketball season. Um, the the pod has grown bigger than I ever thought it could grow. Um, and that's that's not because of me. It's not because of Anthony. It's all because of you guys. Um, we do appreciate all that you have done and all the support you've shown the podcast over the last year. Um, it was a it was a fun year to say the least. Uh, even back during January and February, when I was on here kicking and screaming and hollering, um, it still was a lot of fun. And the 2021-22 season was a lot of fun, and that's where we'll turn our attention to now. And and look, buddy, um, I don't know how positive this would have been if Carolina not made the run they made in the NCAA tournament had they bowed out early. It may not be as fun to look back on the 2021-22 season, but that's the thing about March, the thing about the NCAA tournament, is it allows you to erase everything that was said about you the first three months of the year. And look, going you know going into the tournament, I mean, Carolina had won a big game at Duke, but and even though they had won all but, you know, they'd won only lost three games since February, there was still reason to believe this team could fall flat on its face. Because they had done that 
plenty of times during the regular season. We don't have to go back and rehash the things that I said about this team after the Kentucky loss or the Miami loss or the, the Wake Forest loss. But, you know, we still entered that month skeptical. And all they did for a month was prove us wrong, making that run to the national championship game, um, taking down a, you know, a one-seed Baylor, a four-seed in UCLA who was badly misseeded, and that was a really big-time win. Um, you, you, you take down a Cinderella team to get to the Final Four. You get to the Final Four and you beat your arch rival for the second time in a month on the sport's biggest stage. And then at one point you had a 16-point lead in the national championship game before – um, injuries and and just Kansas's talent and depth overtook the game when you fall, uh, you know, a, a few points short of winning a national championship. And so, with all that to say, it was an up and down year, but it was it was still a really fun year watching Hubert Davis grow into his own, watching this backcourt really become a backcourt that that looked like a Carolina backcourt that we've we've been accustomed to seeing during our time as Carolina fans. But this season, when you look back on it, it starts and ends with one guy. And that was Armando Baycott because he transformed into this this walking double-double machine. He tied David Robinson for the most double-doubles in the history of a regular season of college basketball with 31. He set So with that, he set the record in the history of Carolina basketball. He also set the, the record for UNC for total rebounds in a regular season. And... Really, from December on, you knew night in, night out, Armando Baycott was going to get his. And when the awards were handed out at the end of the regular season, we didn't make too much of him not being ACC Player of the Year. Alondis Williams had a fantastic year in, in, in turning Wake Forest back around. Um, they made a run in, in, in the NIT, and he was a big part of that. But I do think after what Armando did the rest of the regu- you know, in the rest of the postseason, there's reason to believe that that guy should have been the ACC Player of the Year, and it probably shouldn't have been as much a discussion as it was at the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, it was brought up, first of all, by him, um, and I think it's a legitimate conversation that needs to be had because, you know, I, I, I think clearly hindsight's twenty twenty. I think at the time that the awards were handed out, a lot of people believed that there was no way that Boston College and or Pittsburgh? I don't even remember the team that Boston College, who did they play in the first round? No idea. Um, But the belief was that, yeah, there there was probably, it was probably going to be a relatively easy path for Wake Forest in their first game, and they would advance on, and if they won that game, then they would be comfortably into the tournament. And maybe this is a different conversation because maybe Wake Forest makes a run and Alondis Williams goes off and there's legitimacy behind you know, him being the ACC Player of the Year. But I think with what you saw in the NCAA tournament and you compare that to what he did in the regular season, it really wasn't that much different. So this was a guy that we probably should have been a little bit more angry about not winning ACC Player of the Year, especially because one of the main reasons that you were expecting Alondis Williams to win the award was because he was a guy that led, you thought was going to lead the ACC in scoring and assists, yeah. which had never been done before. But he got beat out last second by Buddy Heald for points per game, 
And I think that is kind of what derailed that conversation. Now, the problem is, by that time, a lot of people had probably already voted on the award. So you can blame the award system, but I think also you got to res- there should be more respect for what Armando Baycott is doing and i think the fact that at the time most people believed that carolina had one significant win on their resume yeah. and most people probably believed that that was basically just a stroke of luck probably factored into him not winning the award when really i think it's pretty clear that he should have been ACC Player of the Year, and to be honest with you, he should have been squarely in the running for the Wooden Award as well, which didn't really seem like he was really in the conversation there either. It's really remarkable how individually great of a season he had at a place like Carolina, and when you look back on it, we'll remember this season because we watched it, but... The, the, the college basketball people, it'll be a footnote. Despite this guy tying a record for most double-doubles in the history of college basketball in the regular season, the first player to ever have six double-doubles in an in a NCAA tournament run. Um, and look, I remember at the time when he didn't win the award, I said, look, it usually goes to the best player on the best team. Duke didn't really have anyone that really fit the mold because Bancaro was good, not great. And I thought what Alondis Williams had done at Wake Forest warned him to win the award, but... Looking back on it now, does Carolina go 15 and 5 in the ACC or 14 and 6 in the ACC without Armando Baycott? Not even no. close. No. Do they win at Duke the final week of the regular season without Armando Baycott? <laughs> Do they make the run they made in the NCAA tournament without Armando Baycott? No. But to be fair about that one, and maybe this is another thing that needs to be talked about is when should these awards actually be voted on? Now, the thing is, the reason they vote on them when they do is because everybody's in one central location. So you get all the votes, you announce it there. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, when you look back on it, there probably are are multiple other examples, but this is a great example of a guy that went into the NCAA tournament, continued what he was doing, and maybe even elevated it a little bit down the stretch, and... When you look back on the award being handed out, you can make an argument that it went to the wrong guy. Well, he was not only the best player on his team, he was the best and most important player on his team. Like As much as we talked about Caleb Love having to be the best version of himself to get the best version of of Carolina, you still were not going to win games if he played great and Armando Baycott did not. And that, that was just that simple. In a lot of ways, they were the Batman, or they, they were the Robin to each other's Batman. They both needed to be Batman. No one had to be Robin on any given night. But you needed Armando Baycott more than you needed Caleb Love because R.J. Davis showed throughout the season he could make big shots. He he willed you to the win over Baylor. But you you needed Armando Baycott on the court to beat Baylor. And 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 so you know, looking back on it now, yeah, I mean, the, the, this guy should have been the ACC Player of the Year. You know, he got the the region most outstanding player when Carolina advanced to the Final Four. Had they won the national championship, he probably would have gotten the most outstanding player of the Final Four award, just given what he had to do to get on the court. Um, on Monday night, willing his body to walk onto that court with the, with the sprained ankles and stuff like that. And look, 
when he came back after the transition from Hubert Davis or from Roy Williams to Hubert Davis, he said, I wanted to leave a legacy here at Carolina. And even if he goes pro, he's done that. He's achieved that. He's left a legacy. I mean, you, do, you, you don't tie the NCAA record for double-doubles and not leave a legacy. And we're not... We're also not talking about a guy that just came out and was getting 10, 10 and 10 each night. Mm-hmm. Ten and t- This guy consistently led the team in scoring, and when he needed to step it up down the stretch of the season, I mean, he had back-to-back games with 20 points, 20 rebounds. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's just ridiculous. And then the performance that he had in the national championship game before, of course, hurting himself yet again um, – you know, was was unprecedented. He got off to a little bit of a slow start, but I, I said it, you know, multiple times, especially late in the season on this podcast, the amount of improvement that he showed on the glass from a year ago was amazing. And look, maybe this was there the entire time for him, and last year there were just too many bodies down there. I mean, this guy, I thought there was an argument for the majority of the season that you could go with Oscar Shibway, I honestly think that Armando Baycott's a better rebounder than him yeah. at the college level. Because whenever this guy needed to step up and make the plays that he needed to, especially, I mean, the, the amount of offensive rebounds that he had, even even last Monday night, was ridiculous. That's single-handedly kept... Carolina in that game for a long time. That I mean, that was the reason they were up 16. Yep. So he is just a dominant force that is, you know, and 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 look, people will say that we're we're homers. People will say that it's only because we're we're a Carolina podcast that we're saying this. This dude is underrated, and he deserves a hell of a lot more credit than he got this season. There weren't enough people talking about how good of a player this guy is, and ultimately. Look, he may end up being one of those guys like Tyler Hansborough, like many others that we've seen that are really just great college, specifically big men mm-hmm. that don't that 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 it doesn't translate to the next level. But if he does end up coming back, and we'll talk about him and a bunch of other guys later, you need to appreciate that ride as well because this one this year was underappreciated for sure. Yeah, and and what also was underappreciated. And I'll be the first to to admit this was the coaching job that Hubert Davis put together. Um, and I can't, I can't, and I won't take back what I said on this podcast in February. Because at the time, I thought, well, you you can. We're going to hold you to that because you uh, no, you wanted to have a passionate argument. See, like 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 Mike Gundy, I'm a man. I'm not forty, but I'm a man. Yeah, I would hope you're not forty. And I said, although you kind of, you kind of look forty. I'm getting there. Yeah. Um, I said what I said, and I'll stand by what I said because at the time I thought my criticism was valid. Yeah, and who, who, who on this podcast preached patience this and said, you know what, this isn't about you, as it always. No, is. this is about this, this is, is about in, me. in seriousness. No, this is not about either one. This is about a first year head coach that a lot of people. We're quick to jump the gun on. And look, it's not it's not your fault. It's not anybody's fault. This is the new age of sports. There mm-hmm. is no there is pressure to win right out of the gate. And you can say, well, this is a Carolina thing. Okay, maybe that factored in to a certain extent. But again, you were talking about a guy that had never been a head coach before that 
was kind of learning on the fly with a lot of players that were kind of doing the same. Yeah, you had guys that had experience a year ago, um, especially in that backcourt. But it just they, they last year was just such an unusual season. I mean, you're talking about a season with no fans and just I mean, just one of the weirdest environments, the way that you had to go about everything. It was a team that clearly wasn't anywhere near as close as any team in in the past. And yep. not, it was out of their own control. It was the way things were set up. And for him to be able to get this group back together, because not only did you, you basically had to bring together a group of 15 guys that frankly didn't know each other. Yep. Like Brady Manick was coming in from the transfer portal. That was going to be his story anyways. Most of the other guys around the team, especially the guys that played major roles, they didn't know each other. You had Leakey and Armando who probably knew each other. That was it. So it was something that has pretty much never been seen before. You had to navigate that and then basically lose your Hall of Fame head coach and be told, hey, we're putting this basically a first-timer in there. Um, And, you know, the thing I feel bad about, I questioned after that game at home against Duke, one, how much this team cared. Yeah. And I worried about the mindset of where Hubert Davis was. And who knows, maybe at that point in the season, I'm not going to say he was sinking, but maybe things were moving a little fast for him, and he just needed to take a second and slow down. But the best thing that ever happened to this team was – for them to somehow be given zero chance in that game against Duke, all the focus on Duke, all the focus on Coach K, pretty much you didn't even know that Carolina was playing them in that game. And that moment, I think, just completely changed everything because Hubert Davis led them through that, and I feel like the trust factor was instilled there. That's a moment you're going to look back on for a long, long time in Carolina history. I think it goes back to when they finished beating Syracuse that night before the Duke game. And look, it wasn't a pretty win, but at the time, it wasn't winning was the most important thing for Carolina, not how it looked as long as you freaking won the game. And he knew what lied ahead on Saturday. He knew the task, and he told his team, we're not going over there to be a part of some ceremony. Mm-hmm. We're going over there to win the game. And, you know, look, we work in sports radio, and we were we were tasked with selling selling Carolina to win the game. Even though that was, that was the game, I, I will admit this, I thought the Final Four game was more of us trying to sell that Carolina could win. Because I thought that the revenge factor from Duke was going to play a bigger role than it did. Yeah. That first game, I truly believed Carolina was going to win that game. 100% because I thought there was so much pressure on that team that I saw the amount of coverage that was going on and really the fact that they were not even talking about the actual rivalry itself. It was literally, well, this is Coach K Day. And by the way, uh, North Carolina, the team the, the team down the road's coming in. Yep. So I think that completely changed. And here's the other thing. I don't even know if when he said that after the Syracuse game, I don't even know if in his mind he believed that. I think the way that they started that game against Duke, 
I think that may have been the moment where all of a sudden Hubert said, okay, this is this is possible. Like, we've got something for them here. What's what's weird is, because, um, like, I have the question, should he have been ACC Coach of the Year? And, mm. again, what, what Forbes did at Wake Forest, you can't underestimate that turnaround. But I think what Hubert right. Davis just did this past year – and because he's gotten National Coach of the Year awards from all these different outlets the last couple days, he may have already vaulted himself into a category where he can never win the Coach of the Year. <laughs> because what he did was so daggone it's, impressive. It's unbelievable, really. And look at it, look at how few and far in between Mike Krzyzewski, it took, he didn't win one since 2001. Roy Williams didn't win it the last decade or so. He was the, the coach of Carolina. Yeah, well, I mean, we all know how it works. It goes to the guy that's... That that has shown the most improvement, um, and and to a certain extent, I understand that, and I kind of I kind of like the way they do that because I think that the national coach of the year should go to the best coach in the country, and your conference coaches of the year should probably be handed out to the coaches that overachieved the most. Um, but it really just depends on how you look at it. Now, I will say this. And I thought this was a conversation even before they went into the conference tournament and eventually into the NCAA tournament. Because, of course, when you look back now, you would say, well, one coach didn't make the NCAA tournament. The other coach made it and got all the way to the championship game. Again, it's about the timing of when they vote. If this vote was taken now, there should be absolutely no question who wins this award. Yeah. But when when when... This award was voted on. I will say I think that Hubert Davis should have probably been either number two or number three. I would still go with Steve Forbes because that was a six-win team a year ago, and you're talking about everything that that team went went through. Pretty much a roster compiled of almost all transfers, and that team still... You know, if you look at their resume, you probably could have argued they could have been in it over a couple of teams. <clears throat> Michigan. Um, and then I would probably say, and and their run in the NCAA tournament probably justified him getting a lot of votes here too. Jim Laranega from Miami would have been right yeah. there too. But I, to be honest with you, I think all three of them have really good cases. Hubert, and you brought this up. I remember you brought this up actually – on your on the radio show you work on, pretty much got laughed off. But when he reached the twenty win mark, which is something rare for first year head coaches at Carolina, that probably alone should have cemented him as a a, a legitimate candidate. And then when he beat Duke, that should have been that that should have been the topper right there for him to be in the conversation. Well, it's more, yeah, he won twenty games. He finished top three in the ACC. He had the second most ACC wins in the regular season in the history of Carolina basketball. Like, so, and look, I'm the guy that always says, we're North Carolina. By God, we should win 20 games every year. We should win 15 ACC ACC games every year. And we should do all these things that he achieved this year. But when you look at it from the full scope of first-year head coach replacing one of the three best coaches in the history of the sport— with a roster that is not his and will not be his for at least two years, to still do what he did after getting blown out a handful of times where his team, he could have lost his team. 
And I, and I, we argued how he didn't lose the team because I know if I got my butt kicked as many times as this team got their butt kicked, I would have quit too. Yeah, who was it that said he didn't lose his team? Yeah, that's right. That's so right. I'm doing this because of you, by the way, because you like to do this all the time. So you're getting served a little bit of self-medication here. I don't know if he should have been coach of the year because of the job Forbes did and what Laranega did. But I'm going to tell you this right now. Next year, when we get to the ACC tournament, and John Shire gets coach of the year. Oh God! For doing some of the similar things that Hubert Davis did. Yeah. There no. will be an explicit version of the podcast. Well, because I will lose my ever-loving mind. Well, first of all, do not put out an explicit edition of the podcast because once you go explicit, you can't go back. Hey, I've learned that. I've learned that on my podcast. Apparently, one episode that you label as explicit, which doesn't make any sense because there's a spot where you can label explicit for the whole podcast series or just one episode. Apparently, I just, you know, I threw it all off track. So don't do that. Um, but it ain't going to matter. First of all, not going to win ACC Coach of the Year. That's going to be one of one of our guys that we like on the court. There are still some things off the court that may be a little creepy about him that we're still unsure about. But Josh Pastner. Um <laughs> He's going to win Coach of the Year anyways because that team, I feel like, is going to rebound. Uh, yeah, I, that that better not that better not happen. Although, to be fair, they're setting it up for it. Though. I don't, I don't, I don't think like this year. You were talking about unprecedented. You were talking about a team in Wake Forest that was horrendous last year and had been for a while. And Steve Forbes turned them into a team that I think. There was a point mid-season we thought there's no way this team's missing the tournament. Uh, Miami, they were they weren't historically bad last year, but they weren't good. That was one of the worst years they've had in a very long time, um, and they lost their best player. They lost Chris Likes. Now he didn't play a lot last year, but still they were expecting to get him back. Once they lost him, a lot of people felt like, how is this team really going to rally? Both of those teams also picked outside of the top 12 in the preseason ACC poll. Are you going to have those? Like, this is my thing. If John Shire wins it next year, I, I understand the anger. The thing is, is that, unfortunately, I don't think there are going to be as many great candidates. It sucks because I don't think he deserves to win it. Um, but I think you're probably looking at Pastner. If Earl Grant can build off of what he did at BC and maybe Leonard Hamilton, if he can come back and win the ACC or finish second, Mm -hmm. those are probably your legitimate candidates where this year I felt like, you know, for Hubert, I would say in just about any other year, you would probably have him right up there, especially as a first-time head coach. If this was what was perceived as a normal ACC, which, by the way, that narrative went completely out the window during the tournament, mm-hmm. um, you would probably have had him right there winning that award. But you you got unlucky. You got all these. You you got a lot of teams that were projected to finish bottom half of the conference that did well. Didn't even mention Notre Dame in there. Yep. And you had a lot of teams at the top of the conference that struggled. So I'll tell you this much, though. We know one guy that ain't going to win that award next year. Kevin Keats ain't winning that thing. <laughs> um, another big part of Carolina's, and we, I know we spent a lot of time in the offseason talking about this and really the most of the season, 
was the play of Brady Manning, uh, the transfer from Oklahoma. Um, what did the success that he he provided this team, and he got the award for uh, the top transfer in, in college basketball because now we got to give out those types of awards in, in this ever-changing era of college athletics. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. He deserved to be recognized. What What does the success that he had for Carolina mean for Carolina – wanting to use the portal moving forward because I'm of the opinion and Armando Baycott's already recruiting on social media um and you that we can expect more of that throughout the you know the off season I think Carolina's at a place now as well as any other program Wake Forest you know wh- whoever Iowa State you name it they can come out and say you can transfer in here and this is what we can do for you we can put you on the biggest stage in college basketball, we can have you play in the biggest games, and you can be a key part of a run to a national championship and and hopefully help us cut down the nets. And I think that's important because the big thing for Hubert Davis was when he got the job was he was willing to adapt and understood the portal was the new way to go to build your roster year in, year out. You still got to recruit, you still got to bring in the young talent, but you got to blend experience with it. And... As much as it sucked for why Dawson Garcia had to step away from the team, and I don't want this to come across as saying I was happy he had to step away, Carolina doesn't get where they got to with Dawson Garcia in the starting lineup. Well, I don't think it's I, – I, to be honest, I, I don't think it's just a Dawson Garcia thing. I think it was also the fact that you lost Anthony Harris as well because without those guys having the issues that they had, the Iron Five doesn't exist. It, it it doesn't come to fruition. Maybe it does at some point, but not as not not when it did. And again, this is another thing that looking back on it, this is my stupid this stupid moment of the year on the Four Corners podcast. We gotta get that. We we gotta get that um, sponsored here. I don't have any of those. So we'll, okay, so well, you, having a sponsor. Sure, you just said earlier in the show about how you criticized you. We could replay that whole episode and that would be your stupid moment <laughs> of the year. But I I asked probably like early February, how how long would you be able to go with the Iron Five? Well it lasted until the last Monday. Like yeah. nobody saw that happening. Nope. Nobody saw the legs holding up as long as it did. But without that group becoming the Iron Five, I don't there is no way they make that run. So yes Look, the fact that those guys had to step away from the team really sucked. And I think if you can get them both back next year, that's going to be huge for you because as we talked about after that game on Monday, one of the biggest issues for Carolina is that they ran out of players. They didn't have the they didn't have the depth and mainly they didn't have the quality of depth that the team on the other side did. You didn't have a guy as talented as Remy Martin coming off your bench. Look, I love Puff. I think Puff's going to be a heck of a player. I think somehow, by the way, these one, the way too early top 25 articles are some of the dumbest things I've ever seen. <laughs> and two, I don't know who wrote that article. Whoever wrote that article and put Dontrez Styles in the starting lineup as the four-man, you need you, – you're a moron. You, you need to learn a little bit more about college basketball before posting that because if you think that Dontrez Styles would start at the four over Puff Johnson, 
I I really don't I don't know how to help you. Um, one I saw also had Jalen Washington starting over Puff Johnson at the four. Guys, Jalen Washington's coming off a major knee injury. Let's pump the brakes here a little bit. But the, if they get those guys back next year, then I, I that that's what that team desperately needs. But, yeah, you're right. That that was really the turning I mean, one of the turning points of the season. I think it took a it took them a while to figure it out. But I think after a while, those five guys kind of real they kind of looked around and realized, you know what? I mean, we've got some guys that can help us out here every once in a while. They were all five the Will Smith meme from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, where it's just him looking at an empty room. I, I mean, I think well, but I'm not look. I'm not going to say it was an empty room, but I think they looked around and they said there were some. There's not was an empty room. There's there's not there's not really going to be a consistent help for us. It's it's like hey, look, one night Puff Johnson's going to step up and have a big night, but then the next night he's going to play two minutes and not contribute anything. One night Dontre Styles is going to step up for us. Then we're not going to see him for two or three games. So I think at a point they kind of realized, hey, we, let's band together. We got to do this thing ourselves. Let's band together and do this thing ourselves. Where if Dawson Garcia and Anthony Harris were there, if you have an off night, well, I got a guy behind me that can step up. So yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I, that the reason I explained it a little bit more in depth is because yes, I don't want people to think, well, that means that you're happy that. Dawson Garcia had to step away from the team for those reasons. No. I hate it for him. Like that guy is is you know he'll come back and and you know be with the team or whatever if they do reunions and stuff like that. He wasn't. I mean, he didn't really get to experience it. And I would have loved for him to be able to experience that. I would have loved for Anthony Harris. Now he was with the team, yep. but he didn't get to experience being on the court and going through those same things. So you know it it, it sucks, but. It worked out, I think, for this amazing this amazing story that I think Disney will pick up over the Coach K story. Did the backcourt live up to the expectations we had for them entering the season with the change in philosophy? I would. The answer's got to be yes. I would say yeah, but they are God, man. They just the one thing that they've got to work on this year, this off season, and I, I mean, we said it, I think, last year, but I think. This year, it's kind of the sole thing they have to work on. Because I thought, I thought for the most part, they held on to the ball a heck of a lot better this year until Kansas. I I thought for the most part, their shot selection throughout the year was pretty good. I think with the system that you run, heavy pick and roll, you're gonna have a lot of those three point shots that you're just gonna have to throw up there and 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 make them. Yep. Um. So yeah, I, they just there needs to be more consistency moving forward. You can't have these stretches where hey puts up twenty two one night, disappears for three games and then shows back up. Uh, I I think and I think this is still part of a team that relatively young, also now in a new system. Their efficiency at times it made you wonder how they got where they got. Because it wasn't always pretty. But the mental toughness and the fortitude this team showed to fight through that, I thought was the most impressive thing. To be fair, we weren't too shocked 
about guys that weren't overly efficient shooting the ball, scoring a lot, because we were Carmelo Anthony fans, so we were we were very used to that. It, had had we had this discussion in February, I'd have told you no. They it wasn't paying off, and they didn't live up to expectations. It reversed to where yes, when whatever whatever happened, where Hubert Davis realized. I need to put the ball in R.J. Davis's hands. Yep. Let Change Caleb, the course of everything. Let Caleb feed off of that and let Caleb figure out, I need to go get the ball. I need to go take the game over. Once that happened, and I don't know what what caused it to happen, because I said all along from the beginning, that's how they should have played. No one just wanted to listen. And when it finally happened and you saw the results where – R.J. Davis was better running the offense than Caleb Love. Mm-hmm. And Caleb Love was a better player when he wasn't wanting having to run the offense and score and distribute and do all the little things you got to do as a point guard. That's that's why it paid off. Well, we both kind of knew this, too, because who was the guy that we compared R.J. Davis to before the season that we said he reminded us of? We said that last year. It was Joel Berry. So, yes, you should want that guy running the point. And we said that multiple times. But I, I don't – my thing is, is like, I guess Caleb is not – he it when he runs the offense, it isn't terrible. It but it's not as different. efficient yep. as it is with RJ in the lineup. Caleb plays – it's this simple. Caleb plays better off ball – then RJ plays off ball. Yes. And that, you're looking, we, we talk about it all the time in a multitude of different sports. But I, I'll use, and you're going to get pissed because you always do. It's it's like with football, you're searching for, when you talk about your offensive line, you're searching for your best five. That means how does the offensive line work best with the five guys out there? Not, hey, we're putting this one guy at his best position. How does it work best with five guys? And they figured that out as the year went along. RJ was clearly the guy I thought especially you could see it on fast breaks. When he got out in space and he had those eyes up, completely different than with Caleb Love. And and that's what changed for Carolina. And now, a whole season of that, I mean... It can only do wonders, and these guys are only going to continue to grow. I I feel confident that Caleb will will continue to find his shot a little more often. Um, But I do think one of the things that they've got to do, and this isn't just the guards, I think this is more on the coaching staff, they've got to get more creative in trying to free some of these guys up. Yeah, That has to happen this offseason. Lastly, when we look back on this season, what does the 2022 NCAA tournament run mean for Huber Davis? In the short term, this is what it means. means a contract extension, probably. It, it validated him being the successor to Roy Williams. Uh, I want it on the record that you doubted Roy halfway through the season um, as well. That's the first thing that it did. But it also brings more pressure. Because if everybody comes back, <laughs> couldn't even wait a week. If everybody comes back, and look, those top early in those early way too early top twenty five, they're irrelevant and they're stupid. 
But if you read them, Carolina's going to be a consensus top five team. Well, they're going to be anyways. Um, in, in la- I mean, even if you lose a lot of these guys, they're probably going to be top ten because they played in the championship game. So if everybody comes back and you add the recruits that you're adding and you get the transfer guys that you're capable of going to get, you're going to be setting up with national championship or bust expectations. But there's no way to sit here and say today that this program is not in a better spot than it was this time a year ago because when he got hired, it was uncertainty. You didn't know. You didn't know how many guys you were losing to the portal. You didn't know who you were going to bring in from the portal. You didn't know he was going to be off to the, the, the way on the recruiting trail he's off to. He's got a good class coming in this year. It could, be, it, could, it could become great with a guy or two committing or reclassifying to join the team this year. You didn't know any of that. Now you can sit here and say, we watched him coach for 39 games. He showed us over the course of 39 games, he knows how to coach, he knows how to adapt, he knows how to motivate, and he got you to the brink of a title in one year. And this whole idea that if had Carolina won the national championship and Jeff Goodman was the guy really throwing this hypothesis out there? Oh, was that he was shocking. the next Kevin Ollie waiting to happen for oh, four to five my years? God. He was going to be fired. You well, know what? Kevin Ollie won a national championship. This 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 podcast is about to get borderline explicit. This dude, th- dude. Here's the th- do not listen to anything Jeff Goodman tells you. Jeff Goodman, and look, I'm not knocking how much work this guy has put in to get where he's at. He owns a company, The Field of 68, who has some really smart dudes that work for him. He's not one of them. (laughs) He's he's a a damn moron. Because the fact that you would go to that point that quickly, come on. I mean, you're you're honestly, dude, Kevin Ollie, it was sheer luck. That he got to the point. Everybody knew that because that roster was not talented. It wasn't. The fact that they made that run, I think, spoke more to the fact that college basketball that year was crap. Okay? That's more of what that is. That That is the lamest comparison I have ever heard. And here's my thing. How is that? So, so out of all the first-time head coaches that you could go to, that's the one that you want to compare him to. And now, hey, that comparison doesn't matter, right? Because he didn't win the title. Yeah. That's the dumbest comparison. I mean, there's there's no there's no parallels to that at all. That's just a name that he reached and pulled out of his ass where he conveniently stores his head as well because it, it, no matter what, there was never a moment where he wanted to admit, one, I never saw him once say, that Hubert Davis was doing a good job. That was the one time he talked about Hubert Davis. Was well, he's gonna look. He, he's gonna be the next Kevin Ollie. Well, how about complimenting a guy that beat one of your idols, a dude whose rear end you kissed, and you've got another guy who is one of the most overrated coaches, maybe in the history of college basketball, in John Calipari, who you smooch up to every time you're on your damn podcast, you moron. That is the that the the amount of blatant hatred that he has towards Carolina just honestly makes me laugh sometimes. How about coming out with an unbiased take? You should try that one time because if not, 
you should just sell off the field of 68. Why don't you give it to, to a man that actually has a legitimate opinion like Terrence Oglesby? Because that guy is far from a Carolina fan. He played at Clemson. But he can he he, he could admit down the stretch of the season that Hubert Davis was doing a good job. You're too damn pig-headed to do that. And it's a reason why I don't care if you get if if you want him, he will never be on this damn podcast. That moron is not allowed. Him and Dan Dockage, keep those two idiots away. Needless to say, I, I I think what Hubert Davis proved during the season was that he was the right man for the job. And Carolina basketball is going to be Carolina basketball under him. Now it may look different, and it, sometimes it may take a couple of blowouts and a couple of me freakouts for us to get to being, you know, Carolina basketball. But um, I, I, I think in more ways than one, he won over the fan base. He proved what he needed to prove to himself, to his staff, to his players, and to the and and, and to college basketball that. He has what it takes, and um, even if he doesn't have the answers right away, which he didn't have right away this year, and he shouldn't have had because he was a first-time head coach, he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna die trying to figure out what he's got to do to make sure Carolina basketball is where Carolina basketball needs to be. So, with that, we're gonna take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're gonna get into some early thoughts on who's staying, who's going for Carolina's roster as we move forward into the 2022-2023 season. The NBA playoffs mean next-level basketball. Get ready for all the action by betting the play-in tournament DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets instantly. You clinch a win no matter what. All DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also bet on NBA hoops with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. Plus, for each day of the play-in, get a risk-free bet up to $10 if your same-game parlay doesn't hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code TBPN. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game during the play-in tournament and get $150 in free bets instantly. That's promo code TBPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Really hope you guys are taking great advantage of all the great offers I've been giving you on the four corner side of things. Same for Anthony over there on the Heel Tough blog side of things. Well, with the season coming to a close, we're now awaiting decisions on guys that are either staying at Carolina or moving on to uh, whether to transfer portal, which the guys we're going to talk about, we're not going to discuss them transferring or, you know, venturing out to see if they have a career in pro basketball. So I have the four names written down that pertain the most importance to Carolina entering next season. And we start with Caleb Love, who I think is right there with Armando Baycott, the most important guy for Carolina in terms of wanting to get back um, to a Final Four and potentially win a national championship. Um, the last three Tar Heel point guards to start on a national title team, they were juniors. If Caleb Love comes back, he would be entering his junior season. Um, and I think, I think this one is a lot more trickier than we even probably think it is. Remember the end of last year, we were kind of convinced he was transferring or going pro one way or another. 
His college experience wasn't all that great. The guy that recruited him was retiring. And we couldn't have overly blamed the kid had he decided to leave. This year during mid-February, January, we thought kind of the same thing. He's going to transfer or he's already mentally checked out. He's ready to go pro. But something changed, and he bought in to, to team and became a really big part of Carolina's run to the national championship. Already wrote his name in Carolina lore with that shot he made over Mark Williams in the Final Four against Duke in the, uh, in, in, in the closing seconds. Had you asked me this question last week, I told you he was going. Going pro. You mean before the title game? No, after the title game. Mm. I still would have thought, hey, he, you know, he got on college basketball's biggest stage. He made a shot that will live in NCAA tournament history forever. This kid's gone. And this is a time of year where we read into things way too much, and that's probably what I'm doing here. But then he sent a tweet out last night about missing hooping with his brothers. I think he's coming back. That was that was, that was too white. Um, I think I think he's going to lead the charge to run it back. Yes, I agree. He is coming. I I believe he's coming back. No, he is not leading the charge. I think that's Armando because I think I think it, it seems clear the way he's talking. I was the opposite of you. I think. The emotion that Caleb showed afterwards showed that he was coming back. Mm. I, I really think that, I mean, that was a dude that was full on on the court sobbing. A lot of the other guys kind of waited till they got back to the locker room. You saw the pictures of, of RJ and of Armando in the tunnel. Caleb Love, that was right after the last shot. So I think it's really weird because of all the guys that we questioned the most, who who cared the least. <laughs> it was that guy that we. That was another one. If we go back to certain podcasts or just on air moments at our radio station, I think there were a few times where after the Notre Dame game, he admitted to not playing hard. Yeah. And there were a ton of uh, there there were other games where we literally asked, "Does this dude does this dude care at all?" Um, but again, I, I think with that, you know, and this is, this is something that I think a lot of people have to apologize for. You didn't take into account everything that happened last year, mm-hmm. which was so tough on a lot of these guys and a lot tougher than frankly, you'll probably ever hear. Most people are not going to try to go back and relive those times. They yeah. want to move on. And just move forward. So, I think that was what you saw from him as the season went along. There was the the, the confidence started growing, and I think Huber Davis just got just got through to him. And and look, I think the other thing is, I think he always cared in in a certain respect. Remember, we we thought we thought him and Roy Williams' relationship wasn't good. Yeah. He high fived Roy Williams every time he came out of the tunnel. Why would he do that if he didn't like the guy? Like I, so I think with him, he's just here's the thing, Caleb Love, complex book to read. There's a there, there's a lot of different chapters, and it's it's hard to get a read on him sometimes. But I think you're right, which could mean that he's going to the NBA because yeah. you know we said he's hard to read. My thing is is that if he would have finished, if they if they clearly if they win the national championship he's game, gone. I think this is a much bigger conversation. I don't know 
for sure. But I think if he was the main reason they did, he's probably gone because I, I mean, with what he did against UCLA, what he did against Duke, I think NBA teams would be willing to take a risk on him. I still think there might be a few teams, but he he's f- not a finished product. Nope, he's not. Yet. And here's the thing. If he comes back for his junior year, this wouldn't be the first Tar Heel point guard that was highly rated coming out of high school that had to come back for his junior year. Lawson so, had to. Lawson right. did. Felton had to. Felt and and to a certain extent, you you had you know similar things with Joel Berry. Yep. Um, now we knew early with him that it was gonna he was probably gonna be a four year guy, and same thing with Marcus Page. You know, so I, I mean, my thing about him is, what is where is he on draft boards right now? Typically, a second round guy. If I'm him, why am I why am I bolting for the NBA for? Probably an early to be an early second round pick, which as we've seen, usually doesn't work out all that great. Yep. Well, so and this is where NIL really plays a big factor in these decisions. Where, mm-hmm. and I, uh, um, he, he on three their their NIL uh, account on Twitter, they have guys that just specifically focus on trying to gauge the value. Said he almost doubled it during the NCAA tournament. Yeah, so he can he can come back to school and still make a really good paycheck off his name, image, and likeness playing for Carolina. The second guy, because they're one A, one B, and the importance of if Carolina wants to be a contender or not next year is Armando Baycott. And I don't think there's any way in crap he's leaving. What a Royism right there. Um, now that probably means he's going to go pro because I usually don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I would hope not. I, but, I, yeah. But this guy, what what he has in front of him, if he comes back, and look, his his jerseys are going to ring, and it's already going to be in the rafters to a certain degree because he was the most outstanding player of a regional final that got Carolina to a Final Four, and he did so many, he accomplished so many things individually. His name's going to go up there, but if he comes back. And he's the focal point of a team that wins an ACC championship, goes back to the Final Four, and cuts down the nets. In the process, he would become the all-time leading rebounder in the history of Carolina basketball. He's he's on the list of of best, not not just one of the best bigs to ever play at Carolina. You come back and you do that? No, you're one of the best players to ever play at Carolina. And you want to talk about a legacy? You being the face of the transition from the Roy Williams to the Hubert Davis era, and you got Carolina to back-to-back Final Fours, and you got a national championship, and you did all this stuff individually. That's legendary stuff, man. And I don't think he's—I don't think he's here for the individual stuff. I think he—he's a team guy first, and that—that that guy was hobbling up the court with two bad ankles. Trying to catch Kansas to help his team win a national championship. Yeah, yeah. My my thing my thing for him is I mean I I I I would get the point and this has been brought up to me and I've kind of I I've I've brushed it off. Well, what more can he really accomplish at Carolina? You kind of listed out everything that he could accomplish. Um, and I mean I think most people probably take a take a look at it from from draft stock. It's like I said earlier. This dude's a college big man. If he goes on to be something in the NBA, great. 
but I just I I don't it, right now I don't see it because one of the main things that he's still got to work on is the jump shot that that he was working on this past offseason, but that just didn't really translate mm-hmm. into his game from an NBA perspective. And this and, and again this is that that sounds pretty harsh for a guy that we've been talking about in in a really bright light here down the stretch of the season and especially even on today's podcast. And I'm not saying he's not a great player. I think he's a tremendous college player. But from an NBA standpoint, this dude doesn't have draft stock. It's just not there. He's not on any of these draft boards. So from his perspective, what's the point in, in going? Why not come back, run it back? You have a goal in mind now that you can achieve. If he had, again, and it's it's like this for a lot of guys, if they had won a national title, it's a lot tougher to say, hey, we still have something to accomplish. Now, no, you have something to accomplish. You were on the doorstep of getting it done. And to be honest, you felt like, especially if you're Armando, your injuries hampered you from being able to play your best. Yeah. So why not come back and run it back another year and continue to improve on it? And and, and I think again, you you're you're saying he he could leave a legacy as one of the greatest big men in ACC history. I think that alone is probably enough to get him to come back. And I'll say this, I think with him, you said, well, that probably means he goes Looking from his his tweets on on social media, and and really just I mean Instagram, he looks like a guy that's coming back. He's literally trying to recruit transfers to come and play at Carolina. I don't think he's going anywhere. One of the more intriguing guys, and again this is, this could be us reading more into it than we should be, is Leaky Black. A couple of days ago, he put up a tweet just or a, or an, an Instagram post reminiscing about the year that he had, and thanking everybody who was a part of the journey. And it, and in a lot of ways, it felt like a goodbye, but in a lot of ways, it could have just been him saying, hey, thank you for a, a great ride. We had a lot of fun. Um, and Carolina's going to need him if, he, if, he, if they want to win a national championship. He, like Armando Baycott, not much of a draft stock because you don't see solely defensive guys get drafted. Now, he could maybe defend his way into the NBA, but the chances of that happening are slim and none because it's an offensive-driven league, and even though his jump shot did improve throughout the season, it's still got a long way to go for him to be a below-average NBA offensive player. I don't see the kid transferring because he's he, he loves Carolina. He loves being a student at Carolina. Um, and I don't, you know, and I don't know if he wants to go overseas and pursue an overseas basketball career. So it's either I think it's either he comes back or he moves on with his life. I think he comes back. I think the relationship he has with Hubert Davis, he was one of the most vocal guys about the transition on social media. This is my guy because yeah, that was the cloud he had the closest relationship while Roy Williams was dead coach. That's the guy he went to Bible study with and trained with in the offseason and and did everything with what's Hubert. And the way that Hubert Davis talked about him throughout the season, you could tell that he shares the same affection. And the easy thing for Hubert Davis to sell these guys to come back is is we were this close to what we wanted. Mm-hmm. We were this close. 
And if you come back, we can achieve and have everything else that we that we didn't achieve this year, next year. So it's very intriguing. Uh, when I saw the Instagram post, I was like, oh, but it's that time of the year where we're reading into everything way too much than we should be reading into anything, let alone for me reading. I think Leaky Black will be a Tar Heel again next year. Well, here's the other thing is that when did we see him and Armando start talking about potentially running it back? We saw that a couple days ago. But that was a couple of days after the initial post from Leaky. Guys can change their minds mm-hmm. as well. That that is that is a possibility. I want people to understand that. With him, I I think it's complex in this nature. First of all, he has been there already for four years. Yep. So you kind of wonder if it's hey, time to move on to something new. The other element of it is. I mean, you talk about a dude that just received a beating on social media from the, from this fan base. And look, I know this fan base turned around and, and, and really started to praise him late in the year and started to realize. But look, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's tough to see a lot of that stuff on social media about you over and over again. Yeah, it is. And, you know, for him, I mean, it's, it's an amazing resolve that he had. But at the same time, I think for the most part, he's blocked that out. I think he also understands where a lot of the fans' frustrations came from because, honestly, he probably had similar frustrations as well about his own game. Um, I think you're right. Look, I think I would say this. There should be some NBA teams that should take a risk on him. Now, I know he doesn't have he doesn't have great offensive upside, but a team like the Charlotte Hornets, oh, they could use him. Because, God, they can't defend on the perimeter to save their damn lives. Um, but he is nowhere near draft boards. No. His 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 lack of consistent offensive game is what NBA teams are going to point to. So, and again, just, you know, from that NBA scouts mindset, I don't know where how much, I mean, maybe he could he could go play overseas if he really wanted to. But I don't know if that's really what he'd want to do either. So I feel like even with the fact that he's been there four years, with everything that he's been through, I think you're right. I think that connection to Huber Davis is just that close. And I feel like you know more so, one of the things that, that really stands out for all these guys is I think the connection that these players started to gain with each other as the year went along, is really going to play a factor here. Because if you would have tried to convince me of that early in the year, I'd have laughed at you. I'd say, are we sure these dudes even like each other? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there was a point early in the year, like you didn't see these guys dancing around. You didn't see these guys. The most, I said it a couple times to you, the most energetic people for a majority of the season were the Blue Squad members. Yeah. But as the season went along, you started to see more camaraderie build with these guys, and you started to see these guys having more fun. I know, look, there's going to be a lot of pressure on them next year, but I think that being able to run it back as a group together and being able to have that fun and kind of enjoy everything for an entire year is something that all these guys want. And I I think Leakey's kind of in that group. And look, I think the other pitch, even from his own players, if I'm Armando, I'm saying, look, man, 
we have some other guys that show potential as perimeter defenders. You're clearly our best perimeter defender. If we want to get back to where we were at, we, we need you, man. Yep. So I think that could that that could serve a purpose as well. The last guy is R.J. Davis, and I don't think it's really much of a discussion. I think R.J. is coming back because. Like all these other guys, not really a draftable player at this moment. Um, and also, he's probably my favorite player on the team. So I don't want him to go yet anyway because I'm not done watching him play basketball. But um, he's not as important as Love, as Baycott, or as 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 Leaky. But there's value to him being on this team. Um, but I, I don't think there should be any level of concerns about him leaving, whether it's for the NBA or, or transferring or any. Any other nonsense? Um, so that's the last, you know. So you know, you're not worried about him going pro, right? Or, or <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, look, man. I, I think he did some really good things towards the end of the year. I think there's there's potential, there's potential there. But here's the thing. I mean, I've seen guards that I thought were much better all around scores than him, um. And and probably better overall defenders than him that didn't that that either didn't get drafted or got drafted a lot lower than I thought they were going to get drafted. Yeah, I don't know how his game fits the NBA. And again, here's the thing that you should always go back to when you think about some of these decisions: how many of these guys actually appear on these draft boards? And I got told by one of our friends here at the radio station, who's a Duke fan, and he said, "Well." Remember that DJ Stewart bolted for the NBA last year. Frank Jackson bolted early. Now, granted, he was a second-round pick. Some of these guys, especially the guards, they they could just bolt early. My thing about that is I get that's a concern. Is that not more of an NFL draft concern about guys that bolt early kind of not knowing? Where I feel like the NBA, like, it's kind of – it's rare you see those guys that bolt early and don't end up landing on rosters. So yeah. I, I, I don't see any way R.J. ends up leaving. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Four Corners Podcast. But before we let you go, we do encourage you guys to get over to the website, HeelToughBlog.com. Go back and check out all the coverage from the spring game. Anthony had you covered this weekend as Carolina football now enters back into its off-season mode. As for basketball, we're in off-season mode now as well, but – you can expect recruiting coverage for both Carolina football and basketball in the coming months. Check all that out over at HeelToughBlog.com. As for the podcast, you know where to find us. Every major podcasting feed, just simply search the Four Corners podcast and we will pop up. You can like the pod. You can review the pod. But most importantly, we do encourage you guys, hit that subscribe button. That way you don't miss any editions of the podcast throughout the offseason as we, as we turn our attention towards next year over the next coming months. Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of the show. I do want to thank Anthony for hosting with me. I want to thank you guys for listening. And as always, go Tar Heels. The Four Corners Podcast is a proud member of the Basketball Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at HoopsPodNet or visit our website, www.thebasketballpodcastnetwork.com, to find the best basketball podcast.